Do you guys have that memorized yet? I don't. <laughs> Is that well, it's like the other week I got up here and you know did the you know, the Apostles' Creed. I think I said that Jesus was crucified by the Holy Spirit, which is absolutely not true and, and just heretical. And I, I would advise against ever making that mistake again. Uh, catch me next time or at the end of the service. We'll try my, or I'll try my best not to make that happen again. Hey, last time that I was up here, um, I told a story. And uh, our lead pastor, Bobby, and his wife, Susan, are out at a conference this week. So I feel like I can let you in on a version of that story that I didn't tell you before. Uh, I mean, while mom and dad are away, we're allowed to talk about them, right? It's, you know, anyway, last time I was up here, I told a story about how I came to Cornerstone 11 years ago. You know, I was up for an internship, I heard about it, I came looking for more information, and there was someone else here who was also applying for the same internship. So we sit down and we, we do an interview. I wasn't expecting an interview, I was just expecting information, but... You know, Bobby Harrell's an intense guy, and we did an, we did an interview right there, and we, we applied, and it was a whole thing. Um, and the part that I didn't tell you about this was, while Pastor Harold gave me a chance, um, Susan voted against me. Susan was very adamantly not on Team Jeremy. Um, she voted for the other guy. Um, and so every year now, on my calendar, on October 7th, I, I put... This is bad, but it says on my calendar I put Jeremy Reparation Day because that's the day that every year Susan has to, you know, apologize for saying no to me. Uh, (laughs) She just wasn't impressed with me at all. Uh, You know, I didn't have any of the right answers. The other guy had all of the answers in the world. Um, And, you know, now at this point, it's 11 years later, and uh, since I got that infamous no, that was, that was kind of a big moment for me to find out that she was against me because then I really wanted to, you know, earn her favor and I really wanted to try my best. Like, Susan, please like me. Um, and hopefully we're in, better, we're in a better spot now. The, the main thing is October 7th, you know, I know how to milk something for all it's worth. Like, I know how to make a big deal about something. Um, for example, my birthday, there's no reason why we should celebrate that only one time. You know, we, we should be able to celebrate a birthday as many times as we want to. And I give you full license to celebrate your birthday as much as you want to. I think it's a good thing. I think it's important. However, the calendar date, I remind her about it every year. I talk about it. I remind her about it. This year, she sent me a box of Tiff's treats on October 7th to apologize for what she did to me 11 years ago. Um, But I had to make my point known. She said no, and I know how to be petty. Um, And so I enabled that in full force. Seriously, though, it's all in good fun, and we laugh it off now. But there's something to be said for building a relationship through experience. You know, I have a relationship with the Heralds because they've seen me grow up. And they've known me for, you know, 11 years now. And you guys are stuck with me because of that. Um, There's something to be said for building and gaining a relationship based on experience. Um, They've known me the majority of my adult life. I can't even tell you how many times I've been mistaken for one of their children. It happens regularly. I look more like their kids than one of their kids look like their kids. I mean, it's, it's a thing. Um, but because of their, our shared experiences together, I find myself becoming more and more like them. As we go through the Apostles' Creed, we've purposely slowed down as we've gotten to one particular line. You know, all the other lines, we kind of took it a line per week. We got to this one line, and we said, hold on, let's slow way down. So now we're on this particular phrase, I believe in the Holy Spirit. In conversation, Bobby and I have talked a lot. We've, we've had a lot of conversations about how we've never really heard sermons preached specifically on the Holy Spirit. I could probably count on one time, on, and I've been in church my whole life. 
I probably count on one hand the number of times that I've heard a Holy Spirit sermon. Um, and that's, that's a real problem. If we truly believe in the Holy Spirit, if we truly believe that he lives within us, then we should also believe that we have an incredible amount of shared experiences with him. If he's with us constantly, and we truly believe that, that he's present and within us, then we should have a deep understanding that there should be a lot of shared experiences of us with Holy Spirit. We should be experts on him. We should understand him in the way that we understand the very closest of our relationships, but we haven't been able to do that because we haven't talked about him. The problem is our lack of exposure has resulted in a lack of experience. So because we don't talk about him, then we don't look out for his actions. Because we've never heard about him, because we don't really engage him in normal conversation, we don't look for him in day-to-day life. And it's a problem, because we've ignored it. We believe in him conceptually, but we don't necessarily live as though he is present in our lives practically. And it's a problem, particularly in our circles. So I'll speak specifically to where I'm coming from, and my tradition, which is very traditional Baptist, and we just, as, a, as kind of a way, uh, we, we just way over-corrected over from some of our friends in other, other denominations. We way over-corrected from some of their uh, understandings of the Holy Spirit. We just haven't talked about it, which is a problem. However, we're not going to be the uh, church that shies away from difficult conversations. You guys know that about the culture of this church body now. We've had some really hard conversations, and we've been through a lot of understanding together. We're not going to be the church that shies away from those. We're not going to be the church that ignores one-third of the Trinitarian union of God. We're just not going to be that church that ignores him. We're not going to be the church that puts us outside of our comfort zone, uh, or that, that doesn't allow ourselves to be put outside of our comfort zone just because it's not in our experience. We're not going to be the church that looks at God as he's revealed himself to us and then respond with discomfort. We're not going to be those people. We're going to be the church that fully embraces God as he's defined himself to be. We're going to be the church that fully embraces him, who he is and as he is, and within us we're going to understand him very present in our lives. We're going to be the church that has conversations that are necessary to understand who God is. And our lives are then going to reflect his goodness. I think about one of the most uncomfortable conversations in all of history. So on the night Jesus is going to die, he spends time with his disciples. And he tells them, listen, it's better for you anyway if I go away. Because if I didn't, you wouldn't get the Holy Spirit. So the disciples are telling him, Lord, we don't want you to leave. You are our friend, you're our leader, you're our confidant, you're our Lord. We have no purpose without your presence, Jesus. Please don't leave us. And Jesus makes a point to tell them, seriously, you don't want me with you indefinitely. What you want is the Holy Spirit. You want someone who's with you. You want someone who's forever present with you. You want someone who's leading you and guiding you, someone who's comforting you all of the time, Everywhere you go, that's what you need. And the disciples are sitting there just saying, Jesus, don't leave us. Jesus says, just wait. Something even better is coming for you. And in the same way, we need Holy Spirit's presence. It's why he indwells the believer. It's why when you come to know and have a saving understanding of Jesus Christ, you are indwelled with Holy Spirit. Because Jesus knew that you needed 
his presence. And listen, our ignorance of his ministry within us doesn't negate his presence within us. And so we have a, a situation at hand here where we've ignored the ministry of the Spirit and we've lived as though his presence isn't within us. But just because we've ignored his ministry doesn't mean that his presence is not there. We have to be able to reconcile the two and understand that because he is eternally present within the believer, he is also eternally ministering through the believer. And we have to be okay with the way that he does that. So if he's with us, it's absolutely mission critical to know how to recognize his works. When we walk with the Spirit, so when we live our life in and through Holy Spirit, we should be able to know when and how he is working within us. Because otherwise, if we can't recognize his works, if we don't know what it looks like when he does what he does, then we're never really going to know him because we don't have real shared experiences with him. There's something powerful, powerful about this particular element that we're going to talk today about, about the Spirit, that if we truly grasp it, if we truly understand it, we let it permeate our lives, we will be forever made into different people. Our marriages, our relationships, our interactions, the very nature of our lives will be different and better if we understand the verses ahead. So no pressure, it's just life-changing. No big deal. Let's read it straight from Scripture. This is in Galatians chapter 5, and I'm going to read a lot, and then we'll come back to it, okay? says this, I say then, walk by the Spirit. You'll certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about such things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So here we see two contrasting contexts immediately. All the best stories deal with contrast. So like you watch a movie, any movie, pick any movie, that always deals with the picture of a hero in opposition to their context. Whether that's a villain, whether that's just their, you know, their upbringing or whatever. It's always dealing with contrasting context. Someone dealing with the contrast of their nature against something else. That's what makes the story interesting, is that there are contrasting elements. That's why this particular passage is so striking, because for everything that it says on this side, there's a contrast contrasting view on the other side. Paul gives the Galatian church a list of human, worldly, fleshly vices before then contrasting them with a list of virtue. And it's easy to read this, and I'll admit, when Pastor Harold said, hey, I want you to speak on fruit of the Spirit, uh, in my mind, I'm thinking of all the children's songs that I've heard. I'm like, man, that's like, there's one, oh, it's the worst. Um, and we have a preschool here, so I hear it every five minutes. Um, it's like, the fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut. Um, and so, like, I, I couldn't tell you, you know, what all the fruits of the Spirit are at any moment, but I could tell you it's not a coconut. Um, <laughs> because that's... Anyway, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Honestly, 
Uh, I'm, I was worried in preparation, like, how do we approach a view of the fruit of the Spirit that's not just, like, straightforward? Like, love, joy, peace, patience, yeah, well, we get it, right? And, and it's easy to just accept that as being straightforward and, uh, and just be like, okay, this is nothing new. This is right in line with what I know to be true. It's straightforward. And it's true to an extent. It is true that it's straightforward to an extent. But we run the risk of ignoring the most straightforward commands in Scripture by ignoring them as being obvious. And I think that's probably true of most of us. Some of the most straightforward commands in Scripture are the ones that we are quickest to ignore because they are so obvious. I honestly think we spend a lot more time concerned with the less important issues of the faith or less immediate issues of the faith, well, maybe we should be more focused on the straightforward. Because it's straightforward for a reason. But all that's to say, this letter is written to the church in Galatia. We know it's written about one or two decades, between 10 and 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. Which means, as far as history goes, the Christian church is still very much in its infancy. Believers are still learning what it looks like to live a life in the Spirit. They haven't seen this modeled to them. Most of the church doesn't even know like, who Jesus was. We have name recognition, right? Someone comes to know Jesus. Now, they've heard of him before. It's very rare that there's a new believer that's never heard of Jesus. That, that's completely different than it was in the Galatian church. The Galatian church, everyone that came to know him, this was a first experience with him. They'd never heard of him. Church looked virtually nothing like what our services look like today. And I love our church. I love what we do here, so I'm not speaking against that. But we have to understand the New Testament church looked a lot different than what we do now. They met in homes. They gathered around a meal. They wrestled with a culture that was very much against them. They sang and they mourned and they celebrated together with their other fellow believers, kind of like family style. Because that's all they knew. They didn't know what this looked like. All they knew was there's these people that also believe in Jesus and we're going to gather together and we're going to praise him and worship him together. People are coming to have a relationship with Jesus, and it's a brand new concept to them. People have never heard his name. They're having dramatic encounters with him. At the same time, so that's all happening. At the same time, the Roman Empire is occupying Jerusalem. And they're putting immense pressure on, like, on the Israeli people, thinking that if they were to force a death to Judaism, that then they could gain more power, not over just the region, but also of the people themselves. So the Roman Empire is increasing the laws, they're increasing the restrictions, they're hoping that the pressure over the Jews will then scare them into submission. But as usual, that doesn't really work, right? With increased pressure, instead of, instead of all the Jews becoming Roman in culture, instead, there's a dramatic upswing in the power of the Jewish identity. So as Rome pushes against the Jews, what happens is the Jews don't go along with it. Instead, they revolt in return in, with the ultimate goal of pushing the Romans back out of Jerusalem. You know, give us back our spot. Let us live our life without your um, influence over us. So in the middle of all that, the Christian faith is spreading. And a lot of people can't reconcile the tradition of their past with their newfound faith in Christ. So what happens is there's another group that springs up. They're called the Judaizers. Has anyone ever heard of the Judaizers before? A few. Okay, so the Judaizers come up. 
The Judaizers are a faction of the Jewish Christians. So these are like Pharisees turned into Christians, but they still regard the Levitical laws of the Old Testament. So all the rules that you read that you know, seem really irrelevant today. When you read all those, they saw all of those rules of the Old Testament as still binding on Christians. And not only that, they see how Rome is pushing their culture on the Jews, so then their response then is to push Judaism onto the new believers. Every time that a new Christian church pops up, so, every, so in Galatia, there's a new church. Every time one pops up, the Judaizers come into the setting to impress on the people there, you need to become a Jew first before you can follow Jesus. And this is where you find the church in Galatia. It's the reason, honestly, that this letter is even being written to the church. is because it's being filled with people who try to impress upon the Galatian church. You need to follow a certain standard. You need to have a certain lawfulness before you can become followers of Christ. So Paul is writing this letter then to remind the believers what is true about them in spirituality in contrast to what is being forced on them culturally. That's why in the same chapter, Galatians 5.2, Paul tells them, Take note. I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all, which is such a strong statement. And also, just as a side note, at one point, you know, we're always, we're always a couple sermons ahead uh, where we, we know kind of what the sermon calendar is going to look like, what the next few series are. For a minute, we thought about doing Galatians, but then we decided it was a lot of circumcision talk for right now. So, <laughs> so we chilled out on that. Um, Anyway, look at the statement from Paul. Let's put the verse back up. If you get circumcised, it says what? Christ will not benefit you at all. What he's essentially saying is this. If you rely solely on the law to become a child of God, then you disregard your need for the grace of God. Christ's sacrifice is worthless, meaningless even, if all you needed to do was follow the law. Because if all you needed to do is follow the law, then what's even the point of grace? What's the point of Jesus' sacrifice? It doesn't mean anything. There's no benefit found in Christ if all you had to do was follow the law. There's no value to you. So you have these Judaizers that are coming in saying you have to follow the law in order to understand and really know Christ. Paul's saying, hold up. If all you have to do is follow the law, then Christ's sacrifice is no benefit to you. Like, what's even the point? Which then continues then in verse 3. It says this. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to then do the entire law. Like, well, if you're going to follow this thing, then just do the whole thing. Because if you're going to follow a little part of the law, you might as well follow the whole law if you're expecting that to be the thing that reconciles you to God. Be very cautious if you start relying on the law and not grace. You are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. In other words... If you find your godliness in the law of the Old Testament, then you have no use to find the grace of Christ. These are really strong statements. Remember the audience. Paul is talking to the church in Galatia, reminding them who they are in Christ, and then contrasting their identity with their pull towards nationalism, whether that be the Jewish culture or the Roman Empire that's trying to push themselves on this. So then in Galatians 5.13, he says, You were called to be free." brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Again, this is a master class in contrasting in order to prove a point. 
he, look, he says, look at the Judaizers. They're on this side of the spectrum. They're communicating that the gospel is accessible to you only if you first make yourself right with the law. But in contrast, that doesn't mean that you're free to live in a way that indulges your flesh. There's still a level of godliness that the gospel of Christ requires. So there's this contrast of the two contexts. You have one side that says it's all about the rules that you follow, and then the other side that says the, the rules just don't matter. And Paul says, maybe, maybe the answer is somewhere in the middle. So here's the tension. You have one side saying that your life must be perfectly in lawful order in order to gain access to God. But then you have the other side saying that any form of godly rules is completely irrelevant in light of his grace. This is the context in which Paul is delivering the message then of the fruit of the Spirit. The answer of a righteous life when lived with the Spirit of God is found in his fruit. This is a similar context then to how many of us are reading the Bible today. Many of us have so many different backgrounds that are present here. We know the one side of the faith affirms a standard of living before coming to Christ. They say, well, maybe if you get your life together, then you can approach God. This is not a, a foreign concept to a lot of Christians today. They think, oh, well, how could God possibly love someone like me? And their response then is, well, maybe if I looked this way, maybe if I followed these rules, or maybe if I got my life looking a particular way, then I can have access to God. They're living just like the Judaizers said, that Paul said, don't do that. And then on the other hand, you've got other people that say, listen, God loves me as I am. Take it or leave it. You know, I, he's going to be cool with me. And they have no desire then to be constantly changed, molded, and formed into a new creature through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like this, this is a very similar situation to what we're dealing with now. It's legalistic demands versus a crowd that lives under the mantra of do whatever makes you happy. And it's that predicament, and it's that division that Paul is ultimately speaking to. So there's two different approaches. There's two different contexts, two different groups, right? Then there's two different approaches. Paul, going back, he says this, starting in verse 16. I say then, here's the approach. Walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. So I love the imagery, imagery that Paul is using here to help the Galatians understand. It's still so vital to our own understanding, and it's a metaphor that really works well for the way that we read today. Paul opens up the conversation of spirit-filled living by introducing a command to walk by the Spirit. Again, I love this because it's immediately visual. Life is an ongoing walk, and with each day, you have the opportunity to make critical decisions and choices that are going to dictate the steps of your journey. The question then becomes, are you going to walk by the Spirit or not? It, it's a very simple question then. If living by the Spirit is just a walk, then are you going to take that walk or no? Are you going to walk in accordance with the flesh? or by the Spirit. Everyone is walking. Everyone is on their own personal journey. And I'm not even trying to get into like a your truth versus my truth you know, thing. I don't think that's at all what this is saying. What I am saying is everyone is on an individual and purposeful path to glorify God. Are you going to walk that individual path for your life by the Spirit or not? There's an assumption at the opening of the statements that the Spirit is within the audience, right? Uh, so he says... You know, I say then walk by the Spirit. If he's telling them to walk by the Spirit, there's an assumption then that he's speaking to Spirit-filled people, right? He's talking to the church. He understands that the Spirit is presently indwelling the believers there. At the same time, there's a natural inclination toward a sinful nature. As the text says, 
carrying out the desires of the flesh. So within a believer, there is the option then to either walk by the Spirit or fulfill the desires of the flesh. We live in a really tricky state where we have one foot on either side of two warring worlds, one side being the influence of the Spirit and the other side being our natural wiring to desire sinfulness. And because of this, and this is a really tough thing for me to swallow, we have control over how much of us the Spirit is going to be able to transform. And that's really hurtful and borderline offensive to my own heart. Because I don't want to have to take responsibility for that. I want Holy Spirit to do all the transforming. I don't want to say that I am hindering my own growth. However, we live in two warring worlds at one time where we have to constantly choose in this walk and journey of life, am I going to take my steps within the desires of the flesh or walking by the Spirit? Which is why then in Ephesians 4, uh, Paul says, don't grieve the Spirit. He's saying, listen, you have, you have the ability to walk by the Spirit. Don't, don't hinder that. Don't grieve what the Spirit wants to do in your life. Don't, don't repress what the Spirit's doing. It means that we have the power to control how much of us the Spirit is going to transform. Don't minimize the influence of the Spirit because you have the choice not to. I've seen it countless times. People have known Jesus for the majority of their lives, right? And they've chosen, instead of following after and walking in the Spirit, instead they choose to walk in accordance to their sinful nature. I see this all the time. People who have known Jesus for the majority of their lives choose not to walk by the Spirit, instead indulge in the desires of the flesh. And that's a really harsh and heavy reality. Which is why then Paul points out the conflict in verse 17. He says, For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. Again, you hear these two warring contrasts here. I was just having this conversation with someone a day or two ago where we talked about the image of the little angel on one shoulder and the little devil on the other, right? And I've had countless interactions where I've had a tense moment with someone. I'm sure you can think of a... a, I don't want you to think too hard about it, but think about an experience where, where you've had a really tense conversation or a tense situation where you've been in conflict with a family member, with a coworker, a spouse, whoever. So a tense moment comes up And maybe the person takes no responsibility for their part in the problem. And maybe the person blames everyone else for their situation. Maybe that person has been vandalizing your name in order to save face or whatever. And the perfect biting comment comes to my mind. Like, I'm really good at this. Again, I'm petty. So I I can come up with a real, I can just, I I can tear someone down if I want to. uh, Which is both a skill and a curse. Uh, However... I can come up with a really, really terrible statement. I think about the little angel. This is not real Bible talk right now. But, you know, I think, about the, I think about the angel on one shoulder, the devil on the other. And they're just saying, like, oh, man, you better say that. And the other one's saying, no, you better not say that. Um, and hopefully, after a, a little fight, the little angel wins out. I bite my tongue and I respond with grace, kindness, and love. And obviously, this is not an example rooted in biblical imagery. However, there is truth to there being a constant war for your reactions to be either spirit-filled versus fulfilling the desires of the flesh. We are constantly living in this battle. We are constantly warring between following and seeking after and walking by the Spirit versus, again, indulging in the desires of the flesh. Walking the Spirit means you are taking the path that He sets you on. 
not necessarily the one you would choose for yourself. Verse 17 specifically says, so that you you don't do what you want. Walking by the Spirit means understanding your will to be minimized by the Spirit's will for you. So, there's two different kinds of approaches. You can either walk by the Spirit, you can walk in accordance to the desires of the flesh. And with that comes contrasting outcomes. Because again, this whole passage is a story and an exercise in contrast. There's two different outcomes that can come from this. Our own natural will is problematic. Which is what Paul describes in verse 19. When people are left to their own devices, it reveals a very flawed and broken picture. Verses 19 through 21 says this. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, meaning you should be able to figure it out on your own. However, I'm going to tell you anyway, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things. As I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He lists these problems as being obvious because they are so integrated into our very nature, starting with three items of sexuality. So he says immorality, impurity, promiscuity. And I think it's very telling that Paul begins the markers of a life lived in the direction of fleshly pursuit by illuminating broken sexuality. Because the context of sex matters. And the way you perceive sexuality matters. And the way in which you view the gravity of sexual choices matters. And the way that you align your understanding of sexuality with God's understanding of sexuality matters. And that is a sermon that I will say for Pastor Harold another day. (laughs) But really, if you want to get a good gauge of where your walk is based, I don't think it's an accident that Paul starts with these areas. A good place to start would be to look at the way you view sex in relation to how God views it. So we switch to idolatry and sorcery, which are both dealing with our spiritual reality. So this is about aligning and showing spiritual allegiance to anything or anyone that is not God. Both idolatry and sorcery, which again are very contextualized to the Galatian church because of what they deal with culturally. However, they both put the person in the driver's seat and says, I am the one with the power. I will manifest my destiny. I will do the controlling. So you can see how even though, you know, I'm, I'm doubting that any of you are sorcerers in this room. However, I think many of us live as though we have uh, control or power or we take the position of being God in our lives very easily. So he switches from sexuality to more, more things that deal with our spiritual reality. True godly spirituality pushes us to be humble. So while idolatry and sorcery say and boast you up and make you feel like you're the one to control ultimately, true godly spirituality instead pushes you to be humble in the light and understanding of God's power over us. So then Paul then goes off on really tough descriptors of ways that you and I fall victim to the flesh on a regular basis. Maybe all those are circumstantial. Maybe not all of us deal with, you know, idolatry or promiscuity or whatever. But I promise this next little rant that he goes on is going to be uh, things that we all deal with. He mentions hatred, strife, jealousy, angry outbursts, Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. And all of these are innate character flaws 
that lead to relational breakdowns with others. So all of these now, it's not just about being in control of yourself. All of these now deal with your own character flaws causing problems with your relationships with others. Because of our hatred, because of our jealousy, because of our selfishness, which are all internalized characteristics, we then externally react to others in a way that destroys our relationships. And the problem is, it's so easy to look at this list and say that it doesn't apply to believers, but I bet you can find a very quick example in your very recent memory of another believer reacting with one of these characteristics. Because these are human reactions. They're not unbeliever reactions. They're human reactions, which is why we have one foot in either world where we're choosing whether to walk by the Spirit or walk in accordance to the desires of the flesh because these are human responses that any of us can quickly default to. So he ends this list with drunkenness and carousing and anything similar. So back to the context of Paul writing to the church in Galatia. He's dealing with people who live in just a wild culture of temple parties and the alcohol and the sex were just freely distributed to whoever wanted to take part. And people were becoming so intoxicated with the wildness of the moment that they then became identified with it. So these are people who just got so out of control and were known for being out of control. And what happens is there's a point then where we allowed our identity, and this is for us now, there's a point where we allow whatever identity we follow um, to be defined by, let's say, our sexuality, our, our idolatry, our jealousy, or drunkenness, or whatever, and we become disassociated altogether with a life marked by the Spirit because we find ourselves walking in line with the flesh. What I'm saying is there's a point where you can become so flesh-focused that you cut off the Spirit, and you cut off His influence in your life. That's a harsh reality. Christians live in constant conflict between this human nature wiring and the Spirit's influence. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a choice to either walk by the Spirit or walk in accordance to the desires of the flesh. We live in constant conflict between the way that we are wired as humans and the people that God has called us to be. But the contrast is described so that we can fully understand the other side. We have to know what we're up against so that we can then truly understand and even appreciate the remedy for it. Galatians 5, through 24. Let's get a little happier here. It says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The works of the flesh, which, by the way, he lists as obvious again, they begin with sexual immorality, which is then in complete contrast to the very first fruit listed of the Spirit, which is love. Lust is directed inward, while love points outward. Lust answers the question, how can I serve myself? While love asks the question, how can I serve others? And the very first point Paul makes is this, you are wired naturally to look inwardly. But then the Spirit wants to reprogram you and direct you to looking outwardly in love. We need to build each other up. We should be encouraging each other, serving each other, allowing the needs of others to be prioritized over our own needs. Love is selfish. It's not selfish. Love is selfless (laughs) by nature. It says selfless on here. Love is active. Love is selfless and active. And our love should be reflected of Jesus' sacrificial love. First John 4.19 says, We love, why? 
because he first loved us. And that should be our response. We should love because it has been modeled and displayed gloriously to us. We choose to love as a reaction to God's love for us. The second thing is joy. Joy is rooted in assurance. So joy is the natural reaction to understanding that God will overcome any existing evil. Joy is a song of praise. It pushes you forward regardless of circumstance. Peace is knowing that nothing surprises God. There's nothing that can happen where he says, whoa, I wasn't seeing that. I wasn't expecting that to happen. Peace is understanding that there are no surprises to God. He has proven himself to be faithful, and you can rest in that wonderful understanding without worry. Jesus said it this way, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. You can have peace. Patience is one of the most relational terms on this list because patience has not a lot to do with myself and more to do with how I interact with others. It's choosing to extend the grace of my time is extending patience. Kindness is interactive. It's the way that we express and extend the love of God. Goodness is allowing God to use us as reflections of himself. Faithfulness is being constant. Gentleness is approaching others without harshness. At ending the list, we have self-control, which ties into the very last verse that we just read, which says we are to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. So I have one big question. And if we can leave here answering this question today, then I will have succeeded. Whose fruit is it? The problem with the fruit of the Spirit is that it's become, you know, a bookmark verse, or like a mug verse. Or where we look at it, it's like a Fruit of the Loom commercial or something. It's just, you know, we, we think of them as actual, like, apples and grapes and, and bananas. It's just like a pretty little poster. Um, it's not a coconut, is what, what we think of. Uh, it's because of a children's song that you learn in Sunday school. And, and, and that's great. I think it should be all those things. I think we should put scripture all over our houses and on our mugs. And, you know, I, I think it should be all over the place. I think that's great. But it's also created this problem where it's turned the very display of the Spirit's work into something that is then individually attainable by us. As though we can be God. I mean, maybe you're a terrible and impatient person. Which I'm sure none of you are. But maybe you are so impatient. The common thought has been, well, maybe you should pray for the Spirit to then give you opportunities to grow in patience. It is, after all, a fruit of the Spirit. And then we joke around and say, oh, I didn't ask for this kind of moment. I didn't pray for patience. Why am I dealing with something where I have to be patient? Right? Or then maybe you're anxious. And I, honestly, I'm not even trying to make light of this. I mean, it's like clinically, like an actual predisposition to anxiety. And the answer has always been, pray for the Spirit to give you opportunities to grow in peace. It is, after all, a fruit of the Spirit. And what we've done is we've created a situation where we've made ourselves the one responsible for growing fruit that doesn't actually belong to us. Whose fruit is it? It's not our fruit. And if it's not our fruit, then we are not the ones responsible for growing it. Our greatest attempt to look like God is always going to fall short. We are just never going to get there. And that's okay, because he's gotten there himself. Remember, our natural inclination is to be hateful and jealous and selfish. And the crucifixion of self is to put those desires to the side in order to allow Holy Spirit's fruit 
be revealed in us. We can't grow the fruit of the Spirit because we are just not fruit trees. John 15, verses 4 and 5, this is Jesus talking. He says, remain in me. There's, another, there's other translations that say, abide in me, rest in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You're the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Jesus reminds us, we are not the vine. He is. The fruit might be displayed on the branch, but it is produced from the vine. The fruit of the Spirit is of the Spirit. They naturally flow from a life in the Spirit. You can't produce it as an act of willpower. You can't just try to habitually make yourself more patient or try with all of your willpower to give yourself gentleness in a way that only the Spirit can display through you. It's not just us deciding to go out and produce fruit, because if that was the case, all of us would look just incredibly perfect and fully in line with walking by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is displayed in those who abide in Him. The fruit of the Spirit is visible when we allow it to be, and it is hidden when we allow our natural, fleshly wiring to overtake it like a weed. Don't fall into the trap of understanding the Spirit's fruit to be a reflection of your own goodness. The Spirit's fruit belongs to the Spirit. We are responsible to display His fruit in a life that puts to death our fleshly desires, but the fruit is not ours. If you find yourself never seeing a particular characteristic of the Spirit, stop looking at it as just an underdeveloped skill. Instead, see it as a repressed fruit. What's so important to you that you're using it to repress the work of the Spirit? And what I mean by that is, what's so important to you that you're not allowing Holy Spirit to display His patience through you? What's so important to you that you are allowing yourself to block Holy Spirit from displaying His joy through you? What's so important to you that you'd rather be harsh with someone than allow Holy Spirit to be gentle through you. This is a fundamental different way of looking at the way the Holy Spirit provides his fruit to us. It's his fruit. It's not our fruit. And so if we're not the ones growing it, if we're not the ones responsible for growing it, then we are definitely the ones blocking it, which is scary because that puts full responsibility in our court. It's not just a matter of, oh, I I just haven't had opportunities to grow in joy. It's not a matter of, oh, I just haven't had opportunities to grow in faithfulness. No, it's you're allowing your pursuit of the flesh to block Holy Spirit's faithfulness. You're allowing your pursuit of flesh to block Holy Spirit's love and peace, patience. If you want to be witness to his patience, maybe your selfish ambition is repressing the fruit from showing. If you want to be a witness to his joy, maybe your envy is repressing his fruit from showing. Do you want to know who the Holy Spirit is? Do you want to know how we can see him? How we know what it looks like when he's working in our lives? We know because he is love, because he is joy, because he is peace, he is patient, he is kind, he is good, he is faithful, he is gentle, and he is in control.
And when those things are displayed in our lives, then we know that Holy Spirit is active. And we are allowing him to be, and we are not repressing him. Let's bow our heads together. Do you want to know when Holy Spirit is visible in your life? He's visible when you allow him to display his love through you. Holy Spirit is visible when you allow him to change your outlook to being one of joy. Holy Spirit is visible when he grants you his peace. He is visible when his kindness overflows into your reactions and interactions with others. Holy Spirit is visible when he allows you the incredible opportunity to be a reflection of his goodness, when he proves his faithfulness in every circumstance, when he holds back his harshness and chooses to be gentle instead in his approach with us. Holy Spirit is visible when he gives us the ability and the opportunity to be self-controlled in keeping our fleshly desires repressed. We have to get to know him as a person. We have to get to know him based on how he's revealed himself. There's some people you can just recognize from hearing their voice or from their smell or from the change in the air when they walk into the room or from a shared glance when you know exactly what the other person's thinking. There's some people you just recognize. We should know Holy Spirit so intimately that we can recognize his presence by his fruit being displayed in our lives. We should be so eager to be present with Holy Spirit that we go out of our way to crucify the will of our flesh in order for his fruit to be fully visible. Let's pray together. God, we just ask for forgiveness for blocking the will of your way. We apologize for choosing to walk in accordance with the desires of our flesh and thus blocking your fruit from showing and being displayed in our lives. We want to be people who allow you to be fully engaged and present in the way that we live. We want our lives to be marked as people who walk in your spirit. God, we're so thankful for the opportunity that we have to be able to live a new life because your spirit dwells within us. We're so thankful for the opportunity that we have to, to love you and let you lead. We're so thankful for the, the way that you've gathered us together in community with the other believers in our lives to be able to focus on serving you together. And God, we are so thankful for your spirit indwelling and inhabiting us. Help us to be more like you. Help us to be so purposeful in our approach to walking by your spirit that we start looking like you. Help us to be so good at sharing our experiences with you that we can't help but recognize when you are present in our lives. Help us to be people who are not known for the way that we indulge in the desires of our flesh, but instead walk by your spirit. We love you. It's all in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with me? Together, let's recite the Apostles' Creed together. And then we'll get out of here. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord 
who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He is ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And with that, you guys have a wonderful week. We'll see you.